Am I on? Yeah. Because I can't see the little switch, so I'm not really sure if I turned it on or not. Um, you know, as I settle in here, I am um, delighted and reminded uh, uh, that Stephen does such a fabulous job of taking the message of the word that we're going to, to study together um, and weaving it throughout the service. Um, the idea of story, right? That life is full of stories, some happy stories, some not so happy. But stories nonetheless demand a storyteller. And our Lord is that indeed. Sorry, I'm getting emotional already. Um, welcome. I'm Steve. I'm the pastor here. Um, inside joke, if you're new. Uh, so if you're with us online, welcome to you. If you are new, I would love to talk to you after the service. It would be my delight to do so and my pleasure. Uh, please stop by and say hello or throw something at me. Preferably not the Bible, use something a little smaller, but anything would work. Um, this morning, we're going to study and work through Psalm 41. It is still summer in the Psalms. Some of you, particularly you teachers, are arguing that summer is over and we should move on from the Psalms. But nevertheless, we're going to continue in the Psalms. And this morning, uh, we're going to look at Psalm 41. And so if you have your Bible, uh, Get that out and turn with me to Psalm 41, and I shall read. To the choir master, a psalm of David. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him, and the Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. As for me, I said, O oh Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. My enemies say of me in malice, when will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. By this I know you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me, but you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Gracious and merciful Lord, these are your words, your words that teach in us to love you and to trust you, your words that rebuke us, for we have sinned against you. Father, your words that have healed us, for we are fragile and weak. Father, we know that you are with us, and it is by your word I pray that we would hear you. It is by your word that we would be transformed by you this morning. 
In Jesus' name, amen. So we're having a big grand celebration coming up, and I'm just going to give you a small little hint that uh, Back to the Future will somehow find its way through that time. Some of you remember the Back to the Future movie. Some of you are too young to do so. Maybe you've seen it on this thing called VHS. No, I'm kidding. Maybe DVD. Nope, sorry. Streaming. Um, and it was a movie made in 1985. Basically, the premise of the movie is this, that Marty and his friend Doc Brown, the scientist, Doc Brown has invented a time machine. And Marty somehow accidentally gets in the time machine and is transported back to 1955 not knowing exactly how this whole time machine thing works. Stuck in 1955, he goes and finds the 1955 Doc Brown. And in doing so, through a series and a number of events, Doc Brown successfully transports Marty back to 1985. However, while they were sort of going through a number of things in 1955, they have somehow changed the space-time continuum, and things for Marty in 1985 are so much better. His family is fixed and life is good. This movie in 1985 was the highest grossing movie of the year. So popular, in fact, that the producers, the writers, and the directors got together and said, you know what, let's do two more. And so they did. They set out to do another movie called, oddly enough, Back to the Future 2. <laughs> in Back to the Future 2, if you recall, and for those who don't, I'll quickly tell you, Back to the Future 2 starts off with Marty and, and Doc Brown again in 1985, but they jump to the future, the way, way, way future of 2015. That's weird, right? They jump to 2015 where because Doc Brown has already been in the future and is desperately concerned about Marty's family, he wants him to fix it. And so he does. But accidentally, through a number of series of events, when they go back to 1985, 1985 is completely messed up. Marty is, is uh, ruined and Doc Brown's in an insane asylum and it's just everything is a wreck. For the events that they have somehow done in, 19, or in 2015 have somehow messed up the entire space-time continuum once again. How does one solve for space-time continuum problems? They get back in the door and then jump back to 1955. Whereabouts they try to set up all these new series of events to fix, once again, 1985. But before they can transport back to 1985, Doc Brown is in the, the uh, time machine and lightning strikes it and sends him back to 1885, where Marty's still stuck in 1955. Marty runs to the only person he knows, the 1955 Doc Brown, and Doc Brown collapses on the ground. And up on the screen comes words that Prior to that, no moviegoer had seen to date to be concluded. Wow. I remember being in that theater and being remarkably frustrated that I wanted this story to keep going. That they cut me off. I paid good money for this movie. 
And here I am having to wait until the third movie to come out. This was a huge deal at the time. This idea of a rolling series of movies telling a continuous story through a series of different events was a very big deal. What was the big deal about it was such that I think we as human beings really, really don't like it. We really want a beginning and a middle and an end. We love stories that have a start and that have a finish. Sure, we can appreciate a series. There are many out today. There's many books and movies and TV series. But even in the series, we love for each episode of the series to conclude. We'd like it to have a beginning and a middle and an end. We feel so comfortable that way. Recently, I was watching, maybe some of you have, the Loki series on Disney+. And when the Loki series ended, I think after six episodes, I was remarkably frustrated again. Why? Because I felt like it hasn't ended. You didn't give me the conclusion. What's next? Happily, my wife pulled out her cell phone or smartphone and looked it up, and there is another season coming. I can be okay with that. I can wait for that conclusion. But this is a theme that's not just true in entertainment, but I think it's true in all of life. That we see things this way. We love to see things in the context of its own individual story. Each one having its own message. Like a series of pictures that we love to look up on our phones. Picture after picture after picture. So much so that we got to get bigger cell phones. But each picture telling just a part of the story. We tend to read scripture, I think, in a similar way. We read a book in scripture or we read a psalm. It's a full story. We look at it with a, as a beginning and a middle and an end. Each one standing alone, somehow attached in some order together to make a collection that we call the Bible. But it is far more than that. When I was working uh, at a company, I was wrestling with a professional decision where I was trying to understand all these different component parts that were going on, and I just could not make a personal, professional decision. And my boss said something very wise to me that relates very much to what we are reading today. He said that life is not a series of pictures, but it is a video tape. Or no tape in our modern context. In other words, life is not a series of events that just happen. But it is a purposeful, well-developed, life-giving series of days and hours that have no end. But have all meaning. In other words, the main point for today is that the narrative of the Christian life gives us assurance of a life of sovereign happiness. How does Psalm, one, or Psalm 41 teach us that point? Well, like the Back to the Future trilogy, it can get complicated. So, 
we're going to break it down into two categories and three points per category. No, it is not a five-hour sermon. But two categories and three points per category. Think of it this way, the episode. Our episode for today is Psalm 41. Our second category is the full story. How does Psalm 41 fit into the full story of God's redemptive plan for all of life? Remember the big idea that the narrative of the Christian life gives us assurance of a life of sovereign happiness. Our first point concerning this episode of Psalm 41 is that the Lord protects and preserves those he calls. Specifically, in this case, it is David. He is the one who is foremost in view of this psalm. He, David, is the blessed one of these verses. He is the one whom God is protecting, and he is the one whom God is preserving. There's seemingly a strange change here, though, that I wanted to point out. A change in pronouns and intents in verse 2b. It says, the Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. Here's the change. You do not give up him in the will of his enemies. Why does he all of a sudden make these kinds of pronoun changes? See, the change is not so challenging to understand if you remember that the psalm is a prayer. So David made the change to personal pronouns so that we might see something particular and special in the way in which he is praying to the Lord. David is showing us that God is present with him and that he has a personal relationship with the ever-present Lord. Think of it this way. If you were to speak to someone that you don't know at all, you would tend to use a very formal name. Even in our less formal times, you might say, Hi, Steve. So as an example, I might say about Claude Monet, he's a great painter. But if I was with Claude Monet, but I didn't know him, I just was standing near him and I wanted to say something to him, I would say something like, Mr. Monet, you are a wonderful painter. But if I'm standing near him and I knew him personally, I would say, you are a wonderful painter. You see, David knows. He knows the Lord. And he is in the Lord's presence. And so he says it, you, Lord, do not give him, David, up to the will of his, David's, enemies. You see, he's establishing this song in personal presence with the Lord in a very intimate way. The Lord protects and preserves those whom he has called. Our second point under this category of episode of Psalm 41 is that the Lord hears the cries of his people and draws near 
You see, we see in verses 4 through 9 the cry for mercy of a sick, repented David. Not only has he sinned against God, but there are many whom hope that David would die alone in his sickbed without an heir. It reads this way. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. My enemies say of me in malice, when will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad, all who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. It seems all who know David believe that his death would be a fitting punishment for his sin. We see in verse 9 that even his closest friend has turned against him. Those, those, this person who is nearest and dearest to his heart hopes that he would just die where he lays all alone. Verse 9 reads, If my clo- even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. But David knows that in spite of his grievous sin, God is with him. The Lord alone draws near to him and loves him. He begs for the Lord to be gracious to him and to raise him from his deathbed so that he can kill his enemies? No. It does read, but you, O O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. If not careful, we could see that that might be a retribution that David wants to go and slaughter his enemies. However, in reading the context, no, it is that he wants to see God as he is stated in the earlier part of the verses. In verse 2 and 3, the Lord his God is the protector and the sustainer of life. David wants the glory to go to God for his restoration of him physically And to be the judge of his enemies. A couple of years back, shortly actually, I started here at UPC. I was admitted to the hospital with acute diverticulitis. I won't go into its gory details, but needless to say, it is quite stomach painful. During the wee hours of the morning, I was there for four nights. And I can distinctly remember, come around 3, 4, 5 in the morning, I was having trouble sleeping. And it was, uh, hospitals, as you know, are kind of a weird lighting. It's kind of always lit, but not lit. And there's kind of always a bit of a sound, but not a bit of a sound. And it all became rather mysterious to me as I lay there, hooked up to machines, and quite sick. And I was feeling, I recall distinctly, very alone. Very distant from the world and quite ill. I could not be with my wife or my family or my loved ones. I lay in this bed alone. But I would remember to pray, calling upon the Lord to be near, to comfort me and to heal me. 
I would remember God's sovereign promises. I would remember who God is. I would speak to him in prayer and know that he is good and know that he will never leave me nor forsake me. Indeed, the Lord hears the cries of his people and he draws near. The third point of this episode of Psalm 41 is that God shows us his delight by being with us forever. In verses 11 and 12, we read of David's conclusion to this episode. By this, he says, I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me, but you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. David concludes by summarizing and revealing all that he has learned. In verse 11, it starts off with by this. But what is this in that sentence? It is what God has promised to do. To raise up David, an unworthy king that is sinful and weak to display God's glory and to be with his people. David's enemies will not win. Death will not triumph. Evil will be crushed. The will of God will not be thwarted by any power of man. The Lord God is with David. And it will bring to pass all that he has promised. God will never leave or forsake David. Who is the appointed and anointed king and mediator and deliverer of the nations. What is stark here is that there is no one else in David's life that can keep these promises. Only the Lord God. Indeed, God shows us his delight by being with us forever. So does the story end? Is this the finish? You know, as there is in so many episodes these days, there's a quick scene, if you recall, at the end of the closing credits. It's gotten so prevalent that we sit in movie theaters waiting for the lights to turn on as the closing credits begin to go. Is there going to be a scene? Is there not going to be a scene? I don't know. Do we look it up or do we just sit there and try to test it out? But in this case, there is one more scene and as the credits begin to close. If we look at verse 13, that is similar to this idea. See, verse 13 reads by itself, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. This is a doxology, a praise of the Lord, the God of Israel. The Hebrew word here for blessed, is only used of God. God is the eternal, holy, joyous king of kings. And all God's people are to rest in that. This doxology is how we know we have come to the end of book one of the Psalms. Each of the five books ends 
with a doxology. Here we are, the end of book one. So in a certain way, you might suggest that we put up a sign that says, to be continued. While Psalm 41 has ended and book one has ended, there is certainly more to come. In this second category, if you may, of how Psalm 1 fits into the bigger story of God's redemptive plan, we will look quickly at three points. So what I hope that we will see together is how God's redemptive history gives us this assurance of a life of sovereign happiness. You know, what I find most intriguing and exciting about some of the Star Wars movies or Marvel movies is how that while each movie in and of itself is fun and exciting, the complexity of how each character fits with each other character and how each scene in each movie sort of has a broader or greater purpose as the stories continue The fact that Luke Skywalker is weaved intricately through the story of nine movies, it takes great insight and forethought on the writers. But in a much deeper way, a much more living way, Psalm 41 does not stand alone as one of the 150 Psalms, nor and the five books of the Psalms stand alone. In the, in the 66 books of the Bible. Look again at verse 1. Verse 1 opens up, blessed is the one who considers the poor. It looks back to Psalm 1. Verse 1. And it guides us here to David. From Psalm 1 to Psalm 41. It guides us because David is the blessed man of Psalm 1. It's the same word in Hebrew here in 41 as the Psalms open up in Psalm 1. Clearly connecting and pointing us towards David. David is the one with whom Psalms 1 and 2 are clearly going to lay out. Remember that in Psalms 1 and 2, they set forth that the blessed and happy or happy person, if you were here for that, you know that blessed and happy can be translated together. He is the one that follows the instruction of the Lord. And in Psalm 2, the happy man from Psalm 1 is the one who will inherit the promises of Psalm 2. David is the happy man. David is the one who will inherit the promises of Psalm 2. By this link between the two, the promises of God to the nations are being fulfilled in David, the blessed one. God has established his plan in history, and he is using this sinful man to bring them along through history. To say it differently, that which God has promised in the past is coming true. 
not because of how good or bad David is, but because of God's power and his goodness. You see, it doesn't even end there. The story continues. If we look at, at the end of book 2 or Psalm 72, the second verse of that psalm points backwards to Psalm 41, verses 1 and 2, connecting that the promises of God from, verse, from Psalms 1 and 2, delivered unto David, his anointed one, are going towards forward to whom? In Psalm 72, Solomon. What's most exciting in, in Psalm 72, it is written by David's heir. Remember, his enemies wanted his name to end. They wanted him to die without an heir, but God's promises will not be thwarted. God raised up David to have an heir, Solomon. This connects not only the birth lineage between David and Solomon, but it connects the promises of God to be carried on through Solomon. You see, it connects Solomon to David as the truly happy person caring for the poor, and therefore it connects Solomon to the truly happy person in Psalm 1. Thus, Solomon is the new David, the new anointed king. In Psalm 72, Solomon is the great king ruling over the nations of earth as promised in Psalm 2. Solomon becomes this anointed mediator of true happiness to the nations, as it is laid out in Psalm 2. God's purpose of his people unfolds from generation to generation without fail. The promise of God does not wither or fade, as does the plans of men. That which God has established is coming true through his people, from Adam to Solomon. But does it end there? What's next? Where do we go from here? I can't wait to see the other episodes. You see, no, it doesn't end there at all. Nor does it change, nor does it fail. As Jesus reminds us of this. In John 13, Jesus reminds the disciples that God's plans, God's purpose is being fulfilled in the new king, the new David, the new Adam, in Jesus Christ. John 13 reads like this. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you not understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right for doing so. I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to... Wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is his messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking to all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, 
that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. This particular text in verse 18 says this again. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Those are the exact same words that are used in verse in Psalm 41, verse 9. What is happening in this story? You see, what is going on is David wrote those words to, to reflect someone who his best friend, his greatest confidant, the one who ate his bread was betraying him. And so is Jesus. He's talking about Judas whom he ate and drank with, whom will betray him to the Pharisees and to the Romans. Jesus' betrayals fulfills that which Psalm 41 verse 9 points forward to. You see, Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises of God. From Genesis to his birth, his life, his death, resurrection, and ascension. He is the one that ties the stories together. He is the one that ties all of history together. He is the one that ties all of our lives together. This long story of history is not random or haphazard or accidental. It is not fiction but it is providential, it is purposeful, and it is glorious. It sets forth the fact that the narrative of the Christian life gives us an assurance of a life of sovereign happiness. Because, it's, because it is in Christ dwelling within us that these promises from Psalm 2 and, and Psalm 1 leading to Psalm 41, leading to Psalm 72 and forward. It is in Christ that we have those promises. It is in Christ that all of history is fulfilled. And that fulfillment is in us. That we too may have a story that never ends. That we too may be with him. From now and forever. The story is indeed blessed and joyous for those who put their faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. For those who do, as he said to the robber on the cross next to him, that we shall be with him forever in paradise. Let's pray. Gracious Father, from the beginning of time, you have set forth your plan. A plan, Father, that has never been thwarted and will never be thwarted. It will come to pass. For you are good and you are powerful. And we are a part of that story. For those who put their faith in you, Father, we shall live with you forever for a story that never ends. 
in a story that is joyous and glorious, in a story that we, we can capture the Psalm 1 happy person. We can be that person. And we, Father, can live out amongst the nations and live out your promises. To be with you forever in your presence. To call upon you as David did in a most personal and intimate way. For we can know you. We can call upon you. We are with you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.